the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Christmas story, which is way more than we understand it to be. We hope, you, hope Lord, that you'll open our eyes and our heart to what you have to speak to us today. In your name, amen. <clears throat> so it starts off, obviously, with the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, tells us there, there were shepherds living out in the fields, watching over their sheep. So before we jump into this morning, let's ask the question, first, who were the shepherds? Uh, other than the obvious, right? The obvious is people who kept sheep. But there's way more information in this one verse about the shepherds. Uh, so we're going to provide a little uh, context. Uh, most shepherds, uh, honestly, most people who uh, keep flocks of anything or cattle, tend to feed or graze their animals based on the seasons. Uh, we don't understand a little bit on Cape Cod because there's not really a lot of grazing land. Uh, you know, we would, if you had animals here, you would, from a feed and seed store, you would purchase feed, hay, grass, whatever, and you'd bring it to your animal that's in your, on your property and you would feed them. But in places like uh, out west, the Great Plains, um, other countries around the world, uh, they feed their flocks seasonally. They bring their animals to the food instead of bringing the food to the animals. Okay, because how many know uh, growing, uh, uh, planting seed, growing, harvesting, and then transporting uh, food is labor-intensive? So it's just easier to bring the animals to the food. So that's what shepherds did. So in the springtime around Passover... Uh, between March and April, somewhere in that neighborhood, they would move their flocks to the mountainous grazing areas uh, in land. You see this example in the story of Joseph with the coat of many colors. His dad sends him who, uh, to his brothers, and he has to travel to his brothers who are out grazing the flocks. So it's just, this is, was the pattern um, of what shepherds did. Uh, you can find that in Genesis 37, by the way, if you want to read that. So, uh, because of this pattern, this required the shepherds to actually live with the sheep. Because there were no fences. 
right? There were no property lines. Uh, cities had property lines and said, this is our city, but everything outside of that is just owned by the people. And so we would, they would just graze their flocks as the grass was starting to go down. They would move their flocks somewhere else. And so you can't really build a house. And so it required the, the shepherds to live outdoors. Maybe they had a tent for, for protection or whatnot. Um, but they had to constantly watch for thieves. They had to constantly watch for predators uh, because you move a large portion of sheep out into wilderness areas. Uh, you know, there's fox, coyote, bear, wolf, right? All kinds of things that want to have dinner too. Um, so there's this protection of them. And they did this until the rainy season, which in that part of the world was around October, November. So for six months, this was just a normal pattern in the life of a shepherd. They just move their, their, their sheep, their, uh, their flocks around. So that's a little historical, uh, practical context. During that uh, time in society, in that culture, uh, society looked down on shepherding. Uh, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, we see that the Egyptians actually despised shepherds. And so Joseph encouraged his brothers to not tell Pharaoh they were shepherds. We just keep animals. Uh, and so that, that kind of carried over in that whole part of the world, that shepherding was looked down on, uh, mainly because shepherds were uneducated. They weren't educated. Uh, they were raised in the fields taking care of animals. Uh, they weren't educated in the laws of Moses or any other things, so they were thought um, to be thieves. They were thought to be dishonest. They were thought to be untrustworthy. Stereotypical propaganda, we would call it today right? Something that's untrue about a particular genre of people gets perpetuated in society, and the people uh, really believe it, even though it's not true, and the people who are that are frustrated, um, and so that was the issue with shepherding as well. They were actually banned from synagogues and temples uh, because they were ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean, meaning they couldn't go through the ritualistic cleansing and sacrifices and participations, mainly because of their work. So they were banned uh, from temple sacrifice. They represent the marginalized people of society. Really the people of society that might be somewhat necessary for the world to go around, but nobody really wants to be around them. And then traditionally, uh, Bethlehem shepherds uh, actually cared for the lambs that were destined for temple sacrifice. Uh, mostly by proximity. Some might be historically because Bethlehem was the city of David and David was a shepherd, and so maybe there's a little bit of of symbolism there. But Bethlehem was only six miles from Jerusalem. Which perspective for you, that would be from here to Osterville. That's how far away Jerusalem was from Bethlehem. It's kind of mind-blowing because all these things happen in Scripture and we think, man, just around the world kind of stuff... But do you know that Israel is smaller than the state of Massachusetts? So everything that you read about in this book happens in the, in the geographical size of Massachusetts. Crazy to think about, isn't it? So, a little bit of backstory, context for you to understand the shepherds. Okay, so the, here you have these shepherds. They're out in the field at night. It's spring or summertime. They're, they're taking care of their sheep. They're doing their job, right? Just the mundaneness. We all have a job, right? 
And there are parts of our job, you just go, you do your job. It's just, not that you hate it, not that it's, but there's nothing special going on. They're just maybe hanging around the campfire, keeping an eye out for predators, maybe uh, joking around. Who knows? They're, they're, they're these guys just hanging out, watching, doing their work. And then they have this amazing experience. Outright amazing experience. Verses 9 through 14. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. First of all, I would just be scared to be doing my job, and all of a sudden this bright person appears out of nowhere. That's terrifying. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then if that wasn't enough, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Excuse me. I mean, this, I can't even imagine. I, I like to sometimes place myself in biblical stories like, and go, what would I, how would I respond if this happened? Like, what would I do if I'm just out camping, sitting by my fire, and all of a sudden, like, this bright white thing appears to me and says they're from the Lord. And then after they deliver this message, like, all these angels start praising God and singing. I just, I don't know. First thing I do is probably pull out my smartphone and be like, selfie, selfie, you know? But um, I certainly would be amazed, that's for sure. But I want to point out two things in this, other than the obvious that the angels were uh, given the shepherds this message. And the first is this, that the shepherds uh, were the first to hear the good news. And this represents that the first to hear the good news were the marginalized. The first to hear the good news were the marginalized. You see, God didn't reveal himself first to the prominent. He didn't reveal himself first to the wealthy. He didn't reveal himself first to the religious. But he revealed himself first to those that society shunned. It's amazing. And this actually is a theme throughout all of Jesus' ministry. Now I want to be uh, cautious and point out here that some people would say that, well, Jesus is just, uh, Christianity is just a religion to the marginalized and the poor and the weak of society. And that's not true either. You'll see uh, next week that uh, the wise men who were the opposite of the shunned, somehow they found themselves at the feet of Jesus too. And so uh, Jesus uh, represents God for everybody. But today, he, he comes to the marginalized first, which is amazing. It's a theme throughout his ministry. And in Matthew 21, verse 31 and 32, he actually rebukes the religious le- leaders. He says this, which he, he just told a parable. And he says, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God 
ahead of you. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the shunned, marginalized people in that society. And Jesus is saying, hey, these people are actually getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why is this? In Acts chapter 10, I just, uh, there's a few of us who are in a uh, Bible reading plan. And this morning in Acts chapter 10, it recorded the story of Peter on the rooftop. And I thought it fit perfect with my sermon this morning. And God often confirms things like that. But Peter is seeing this vision and God's saying, hey, eat. And he goes, no, 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 God, I'm not going to touch anything that's unclean. I'm pious. I'm a righteous person. I don't touch unclean stuff. And God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And he does that to Peter three times. And what it does is it reorients Peter's thinking. He says, hey, um, that's just a religious set of rules. Jesus has done something different. And it changes Peter's mindset. The unclean and clean, later he learns God was referring to the Gentiles, a group of people that the Israelites deemed as marginalized, as shunned, as unclean, and not to be dealt, talked to or, or associated with. And so when I think of the shepherds who fit that category of people, unable to worship, considered unclean because they couldn't go through the regular, regular uh, ritualistic things, society just kind of didn't really want to deal with them or be around them. So my question this morning is, who do you shun and marginalize? For those on the worship team, who, who are those people? Who are those people for you? Are they the conservatives or are they the liberals? Are they the capitalists or are they the socialists? Are they the vaxxers or anti-vaxxers? Are they the homosexuals, the transgenders, or the straight people? Are they the blacks, the Asians, the whites, the indigenous? Are they those Catholics or those mainlines or those Calvinists or those Pentecostals? Are they the conspiracy theorists or are they those non-believing scientists? Are they the drug addicts, the homeless, the prostitutes, the fill-in-the-blank? We love to marginalize and shun people. We love to put them in categories and say, yeah, I just have to deal with those people, but I really don't want to be around them. We all have those people in our heart and our mind. Whoever they are, they're loved by God. And He will send someone, even if it's an angel, to tell them the good news. And can I challenge you today that wouldn't it even be better if you allowed God to change your heart and to change your mind, and then He would use you to bring the good news to the very people you marginalized and shunned? It's a novel thought. But the first to hear the good news were the marginalized, which speaks to the heart of God. If you're a marginalized person, if you find yourself in an environment where you're shunned or, or pushed aside for whatever reason, God knows you. God sees you. If you find yourself as one of the elites, somebody who's not marginalized, but man, you're on the, you're on the top of the food chain, just remember, that doesn't mean anything to God. The tax collectors and prostitutes might inherit the kingdom of God before you. 
So we might need to humble ourselves a bit. The second thing this story shows us is that God knows you and he will find you. Which I love this part because some of us, whether it's now in your life, maybe you're watching online later, that you think that where you are and what you're doing in life gets in the way of divine visits. Like maybe you have to work when the church is gathered. You ever think about those waitresses? Take care of, in the South we used to think about it all the time, those, those waitresses who took care of the church people when they got out of church, but they themselves couldn't go to church. Or the hospital worker who's out there taking care of a bunch of sick people, making sure things are, people are staying healthy and they can't be here because of their work. People who feel like, hey, what I do, where I'm at in life, gets in the way of God visiting me. Maybe you have to care for your family. Maybe you're home today with sick kids and you can't come to church. And you're just like right off, well, I guess God's not speaking to me today. i got to take care of my kids. i got to take care of my family. Or maybe your health prevents you from being here yourself. Creaks and groans and aches and pains and fevers and all kinds of such. And there's this feeling like, man, I'm in a section of life where maybe one day I'll get to hear from God and do great things for God. Maybe God will visit me in a powerful way when I'm through this stage. This story tells us just the opposite, that people like that, God goes out of his way to visit. People who couldn't come into the house of God, people who couldn't come to to him on their own terms, God finds them out. And God found the shepherds and in some mountainside pasture somewhere or far from him who couldn't participate in worship, who were shunned by the elites, and said, hey, here I am. In fact, I've come to you first. If you find yourself in a period of time of your life where you don't feel like you have the energy or the time to really invest into God and see what you want done, God knows. God knows exactly who you are, and it's not going to prevent him from him visiting you. He knows you. He sees you. And he's going to come visit you when you least expect it. Let's keep looking at the, uh, the story of these, of these shepherds. They've just had this amazing experience of, of God visiting them. I mean, they've probably heard the stories of God doing amazing things like in Solomon's temple and Solomon prayed and the place was filled with smoke and Maybe Zechariah was praying and he went mute because an angel saw him about John the Baptist. Maybe they heard all these amazing things that God did in the temple and in the synagogue and they never seen it. And here they are, they just witnessed this amazing company of angels. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened with the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I just want to say that the the shepherds responded with curiosity. In this case, curiosity did not kill the cat. Okay? The angels tell them this amazing thing, show themselves to them, and what do they do? They go. They explore. They discover, they search, they find. They don't just stay sedentary and say, well, that was a cool experience. 
And then they sit around a campfire and talking about this amazing thing that they saw God do. They go, no, what is this that God has done? They go, they search, they find. And can I tell you, church, God is calling us to do the same. Because Jesus said, those who seek me, they will find me. And so when God shows himself to you, when God speaks to you, it's not just for that moment. It's to initiate. It's to make you uncomfortable. It's to pique your curiosity so that you say, let's go find and let's go search. Let's go discover this thing the Lord has said to me. Let's be curious. Let's explore. We know God doesn't fit in a little box. We know that his love is deeper than we can ever imagine. He's, he's bigger, he's higher, he's wider. Do you know that the universe continues to expand? It means he's still a creative God. Things are still happening. Let's not be afraid to allow God to stir within us a holy curiosity that we would go and search and discover what God has in store for us. Then in verse 17, it says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them, about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This represents the shepherds didn't just uh, go and discover and have this awesome personal experience. Once they discovered what they'd heard and what they'd seen, they shared it. They talked about it. They couldn't keep their mouth shut. And it created amazement. I think that the point there is self-explanatory. Even though Jesus is very personal, it's not just a personal experience. He's meant to be shared. Verse 19, uh, Mary treasures these things in her heart. And then in verse 20, it says this, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Let's look for a moment here, because our, our, our theme this month is a Christmas response. How did, the, how did the shepherds respond in discovering Jesus? And here it says that they glorified and praised God. Now, I don't know about you, but when this, these stories are so familiar. I mean, I've been, I, I joke and I tell people I was born saved. Because my mom like raised me in the church. I mean, eventually I had to find Jesus myself. But I've heard these stories every year for forty-eight years. Doesn't mean I don't like them anymore, but they come become a little nostalgic, a little tradition, a little feel good. But the meaning gets glossed over sometimes. And I don't know if you realize it, but there's the shepherds returned doing two things. Those are two different verbs. I like to lump them together. It's like one thing. They glorified and praised God. Wait a minute. That's not, that's not two different words that are synonymous with the same meaning. They're two actually two different verbs. So what is it that the shepherds did? How did the shepherds respond? The first one, it says they glorified. Well, to glorify something means to ascribe Weight by recognizing value. He said, ascribe weight. Well, the, the, the visual piece of that is when a rock is dropped into uh, a body of water and there's a ripple effect. It changes things as it moves out. It's 
the weight of the rock has created a ripple effect. That's the visual piece. So what does that mean for you and for me? Is that we value God for who he is versus who we would want him to be. You say, well, how is that any different? Oh, that's a big difference. Because I want God to be only merciful, loving, and forgiving. That's the God that I want to serve. That is who God is. But the, the expectant God, the God who's going to bring judgment at the end, the God who has you know, a standard for living, I'm not so sure. You know, see, we have this parts about God that we want him to be. And then there's God who he really is. And so when we value God enough for him to be who he really is in our life instead of who we want him to be, we've glorified him. You see, when you change for God, when you give him his rightful place in your thoughts, your beliefs, and your actions, you've glorified God. It's mostly internal that has an external manifestation eventually, but you're giving God his rightful place in your heart, in your life, and in society. You've glorified him. You've ascribed him value to you. So what does it mean to praise? Praise means to, I think this one's the obvious one for us, express warm approval of or grateful homage. It's basically a public expression of admiration. Praise is, right? I mean, when you praise your kids for something they've done, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're giving them a public admiration. Like, look how... Johnny did with his schoolwork. Isn't he amazing? Like, did you see how Susie played the this? Like, your public expression of, of gratitude, of admiration. And so when we do that with God, when we praise God, and we publicly express admiration to him, we're praising him. Which is kind of what the shepherds did. When they left, they couldn't stop talking about the things that they had seen that God had done. They were giving him praise. So praise doesn't have to be done with a guitar and a, and a drum kit. It doesn't even have to be done with music at all. Praise is, cert- just def- is the, the public expression of your admiration, which we do through music. Those, the songs we sing... Uh, Pastor Sean and the team try to pick out songs that are theologically correct, that express truly all of these kinds of pieces because a lot of us aren't creative enough to come up with those thoughts on our own. And when we read them, we go, yeah, 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 that's how I feel about God. And then we sing them to God publicly. It doesn't have to be just that, though. The shepherds spread the word, a public expression of what they had seen and heard. And in sowing, they praised God. wrap this, this up this morning. We're looking at the shepherds. We're looking at people who were marginalized by society because of their work they did, um, because of their education level. Uh, they just weren't, um, weren't valued in society. And, and if we really look at it, they actually, uh, the work they did enabled religion to continue even though they couldn't participate in it. 
because the lambs they were raising were done for temple worship, yet they weren't allowed to be in the temple to participate in the worship. So there's a lot of people in our society who religion has closed the doors to because of their place, because of their work, because of where they are in society. And Jesus came for all people. And he demonstrates that here in first, first and foremost uh, by, by visiting the shepherds. And, and just a cool geeky factor too is um, the first preachers of the gospel were the shepherds. They didn't have a seminary degree. <gasps> How do we know where they were speaking th- theologically? Cra- Sorry. That's from my theological geeky friends out there. But the shepherds responded to this uh, expression of love from God. Uh, if you were the marginalized, unable to worship, and God came and met you where you were at, you knew that you couldn't participate because of who you were and what you'd done and the job that you did, yet God left the temple, left the confines that man had put around him and visited you one-on-one and said, hey, I know you. I've come to share a message with you. What would that do in your, in your life that God himself would, would know you and seek you out to share his good news with? What was there? What was their response? They glorified and praised God. They moved from uh, from fear in verse 9. And many times when we meet God for the first time in our unregenerate state, right, it's, it's a little bit of a fearful thing. Think of the prophet Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. Right? And, and we learned last week when, with Herod, when the news of Jesus, Herod's first response uh, was fear and greed. And oftentimes when, when our unregenerate self, our sinful self is met with the presence of God, the first thing is fear. Oh no, what now? What is he going to expect? What's going to happen? But then that goes to curiosity. The shepherds were curious in verse 15. Huh, this news, this message is said, don't be afraid. We don't have anything to be afraid of. There's good news. Let's, I'm curious about this. And then that curiosity led to public expression. And I just think that that's, that's the response he wants from every one of us. That you might be here uh, this morning, you might be watching online, and, and when you come face to face with Jesus Christ, the only thing you feel is fear. The fear of what you may have to give up. The fear of what he may expect of you. The fear of his judgment because of the life you've lived. Or any of those kinds of things. And it's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, so you do what... Herod did, you can watch last week's messages, you just marginalize Jesus or you try to eliminate him. But once you realize that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, and God is here to give you good news because he doesn't want any to perish, he wants as many people as possible to live with him for an eternity, it should pique our curiosity. Who is this God? Who is this Jesus that loves me so much? Who is this Jesus that's come out to my workplace and into the field where I've just not even known him and sought me out? I'm curious about this Jesus. 
And then as we discover who he is, as we meet him and then we interact and the things that we've heard are true and the things that we see and observe, it moves to public expression. Let me tell you about this Jesus. It moves to glorification. I'm going to move my life around. I'm going to reorient my life because of Jesus. I'm going to change the what I think about. I'm going to change what I believe. I'm going to change how I act because of this Jesus who I've met. And so this morning, I just have a question for you. Where are you at on that scale? When you meet Jesus, does it terrify you? I encourage you to get curious. Start seeking him out. Start reading about him. Start searching. Have you done that already? But you need to move from complacency to curiosity. Maybe there was a period of time where you were curious about God. He revealed himself, you were a little curious, you found out just enough, but life, the worries of this world, the, the things that need to get done, the responsibilities, all these kinds of things have just continued to stack against you, and, and God is just something that you're trying to maintain, but, but the curiosity piece is gone. I challenge you today to be like the shepherds and say, Lord, move me from my complacency to curiosity. Maybe you've been curious, you've learned, you've absorbed, you've met God, you you have this solid faith within you, but you need to glorify God by actually changing some things about your life, by giving him his rightful place in your thought process, in your family life, in your workplace, in your actions, that there's, man, there's these things I'm holding on to, I'm not really glorifying God there, I'm not letting him have priority. Or lastly, maybe you're working well on those things, but man, just your public expression is lacking. You're afraid to talk about them. You're afraid to share. It's so easy to tell people about the new restaurant in town, isn't it? Or how well the, the Patriots are doing. And did you see the game? Or So easy. That stuff just rolls off the tongue. Things that excite us, right? That just... Man, then all of a sudden we talk about Jesus, like, oh, I don't, they probably don't want to hear. Guess what? Some people don't want to hear about the Patriots either. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear about the famous restaurant down the road either. There are people out there who don't care. But they listen nicely. Maybe their curiosity's peaked. We talk about those things anyway. It's public expression. God has done something in. I'm going to publicly express my admiration for him. We're not talking about cramming uh, the Bible down people's throats. You know, an indication, let me help you, this isn't my notes. If you're using the, when you're talking about Jesus, if if you're using the word you, stop. And use the word I. Or me man, you know what God did in my life? You know what God means to me? You know what I experienced with God? You know what happens when I read the Bible? You know what happens when this, when I did this, when me this and that and this? Because when you say, you know what, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this, you need to do that. 
Just like anybody else. Someone says, you know, you need to go, uh, go down to that restaurant, talk to so-and-so. They're going to, like, don't tell me I need to go down. Like, but if you talk about how awesome that restaurant is and how well they treat you, like, now I'm intrigued. I want that experience too. So talk about him. Say I, me, my. He's personal. And if you don't have those stories, if you don't have that excitement in your life, ask God to bring you back to the curiosity stage. God, make me curious. Whet my appetite. Show yourself to me. Make my relationship with you vibrant. He'll do it. Whether you can be here or not in this building, he'll do it. Thank you this morning for the shepherds, God, who represent so many of us in this room and who are watching online. People who for various reasons have felt marginalized, who felt like the things that they've experienced or the things they've done or the things that they've thought or where they're at right now disqualifies them for some sort of divine experience. But Lord, you, you proved all of that wrong. And you sought us out. And you showed yourself to us. Every one of us in this room is, is here today because we had an experience with you that was life-changing. Lord, help us to be curious, to seek you out for who you are. Help us, Lord, to glorify you with the place we give you in our life and help us to praise you by, by giving you public uh, admiration. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who their thoughts of you bring any kind of fear or dread, that, Lord, you would speak to them like you did the angels and do not be afraid. I bring you a message of good news that will cause great joy. Lord, I pray that as we are curious about you and seek you out, that it would bring great joy in us that would lead us to glorifying you and praising your name. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In your precious name, amen.